The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am honored to welcome back one of my favorite guests, Philip Ackerman Leist. He is the author of Rebuilding the Food Shed and Up Tunket Road. We spoke several years ago right after he published Rebuilding the Food Shed. He is a professor at Green Mountain College, which is where he established the college's farm and sustainable agriculture curriculum. He directs its farm and food project, founded its Master's of Science in Sustainable Food Systems, which is the nation's first online graduate program in food systems. And it features applied comparative research of students' home bioregions. He and his wife, Erin, farmed in the South Tyrol region of the Alps, as well as North Carolina, before beginning their 20-year homesteading and farming venture in Paulette, Vermont. What I love about the book we're going to be talking about today, titled A Precautionary Tale, How One Small Town Banned Pesticides, Preserved Its Food Heritage, and Inspired a Movement, is that it is a David and Goliath tale where a small community, thanks to the members of active, vigilant citizens, made a change in their environment to protect the health of their children and, of course, their future. Welcome, Philip. It's wonderful to have you back. Oh, it's great to be here with you again, Melinda. Thanks so much. Well, I heard you speak most recently at the 36th Annual Beyond Pesticide Forum, which was held in Irvine, California in mid-April, where you were both on a panel as well as the final keynote speaker in which you spoke about the extraordinary story that led up to this book. And it's remarkable to me because it seems, as you mentioned in the book, that we are truly up against a Goliath. And if we want to try to protect our farmland and our food from toxic pesticides, it seems so often like a losing battle. But you tell a story of a winning town. How did you get involved in this region and in telling this story? It's a funny series of coincidences, Melinda, that pulled all this together. The South Tyrol region of Italy, which is an autonomous province now, is a place where I first went in 1983 as an exchange student at Brunnenberg Castle, which also has an agricultural museum associated with it. And I was just so taken by the kind of diversified agriculture that I was seeing in that region. And you know, I was so smitten that I kept going back over and over again and ended up going back in the early 90s for the period of a little more than three years to work on the farm and to lead study tours of international programs that were coming through. And so then when I was back taking a group of graduate students from Green Mountain College in 2014, I was told by my friend Brigitte, well, there's the town of Maltz, which I knew well. It was one of my favorite places. And she said, you know, they're about to have a referendum to ban all pesticides. And I thought, what? It's impossible because I'd been there and farming and, and working in vineyards and orchards and spraying pesticides myself, uh, which is part of the reason I ended up deciding I didn't want to do that anymore and, and, and leave. And so, you know, I went to explore and found out what the story was about. And 
and was lucky enough to be able to bring Douglas Gaten from the Lexicon of Sustainability along with me two more times. And we just started documenting the story that just had to be told because it was a, a global precedent, you know, world first. And it gives everyone a manifesto for doing the same kind of activism in their own communities. I want to go back to where you grew up in North Carolina. Your grandfather was a plant pathologist developing peach varieties. And your understanding, which is the same as most citizens, I think, is that we have to use pesticides because they're critical in producing the kind of food that consumers want. And that is, you know, the kind of fruit that doesn't have any scars or blemishes on it. And you tell even the story of, you know, being at a farm stand and helping consumers, you know, trying to veer them towards the ones they might have a little blemish, but they're much sweeter <laughs> and more delicious. Right. But no, the people wanted the unblemished purchase of perfect fruit. <laughs> right. And so, and here we are today, right? Decades later, same frame of mind. But I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that mindset, about how we are trained to view pesticides. Right. You know, I, I think we've all been softened you know, really by the, the marketing and the media that's been associated with pesticides and the need for pesticides. And, you know, and I, I think 20, 30 years ago, there were fewer, I, I guess, at least obvious stories about the successes of organic agriculture. But, you know, I think that's changed dramatically. And now we, we have these amazing models of people who um, you know, really are producing phenomenal products without the use of synthetic pesticides. But working with my grandfather, I remember well one day as we were kind of cowering from the Sandhill sun down in North Carolina in, under the porch and shelling beans together. And I was you know, saying, I wish we could go organic. I just say, oh, I don't like these pesticides. And he went inside and pulled out a black and white photograph from the 1930s of peaches at the time. And he said, is this what you want? Is this what you think we're going to be able to sell? You know, there's, uh, how are we going to have an economically viable farm if things look like this? And so his notion was that pesticides and plant breeding were the ways forward. And, you know, I, I think we've done a great job with the plant breeding in many cases. But, you know, at the same time, uh, we haven't done such a good job at taking a good hard look at pesticide use and and the implications. And now we're also feeling it over multiple generations we're really feeling the impacts of those pesticides. Right. Will you describe how the concept of pesticide safety was established within a paradigm of the necessity of pesticides, complete with the vocabulary of thresholds and maximum exposure and parts per million? And in addition to the fruit loss, you also mentioned that for your grandfather's generation, you know, somebody who had seen the economic destruction from the boll weevil with the cotton crop you can understand how people were led down the path of feeling like there was no other way. But I believe, as you mentioned in your talk in Irvine, part of the problem is we really haven't had enough research into viable alternatives. Exactly. And I think when you look at the number of research acres we have dedicated nationally to organic, the figure is about 0.01% of the research acres that we have dedicated to agriculture are dedicated to organic. And, and that's a real travesty. <laughs> you know, so that, it's clear that that needs to change. And then we, you know, we also have to do a better job of sharing the stories of where those successes are evident. And certainly the Rodale Institute is a great example with their farming systems trial that they've done for more than three decades now where they're, they're growing side by side conventionally and organic products. So I, I think that's a big part of it. And then, 
when you look at organic too, I, in my mind, there's virtually no reason that we can't grow vegetables organically. I mean, that, that's been well proven. And my own experience with livestock, I, we, can, we can manage livestock very well organically um, and successfully. And fruits are more challenging. There's no question about that. But there are the models out there now, and we need to do a better job not just uh, doing the research, but really sharing the on-farm research that the farmers who are successful organically are, you know, already have. You know, their their databases are there and and ready, and and the farms are open for inspection for people to see how they're doing it. Right. Well, you know what I love about your book is that you start off chapter one about drift, and while you describe the drift that happens in malls with regard to the big apple industries moving up the mountains because of climate change, we here in the United States are also suffering with drift. I know farmers who have lost economically from drift from a neighbor, pesticide drift. Now in the Midwest where I live, we are seeing more spraying due to resistant weeds. And so we're seeing damages due not only to commodity crops now, but to vegetable gardens and fruit trees and nut trees. So I think that this book comes at such an opportune time for everyone to stop and rethink the way we're farming. So let's visit this beautiful part of Europe, northern Italy, in the Alps. You visit Malts, you find out that a farmer has suffered from drift, and the community comes together to find an alternative way. How did they do that? Yeah, it's a really pretty amazing story. And, you know, I think the two themes that really run through it are the use of the precautionary principle and then also direct democracy. Those two pieces ended up being very important. But the first stage really was to recognize the problem, to begin talking about it publicly, and then to, you know, not just think about pesticides, but to start thinking about the kind of future that they wanted to have as a town, as a municipality together. And did that need to include pesticides? And if it did, you know, what would that look like? And if they were just going to transform their communities into these apple monocultures, was that what they wanted? And those conversations, they began to decide that that wasn't it. That wasn't what they wanted. And so as they started to bump up against the issues of pesticide drift for the organic farmers and the grain renaissance that was happening there, and, you know, even having an organic hotel in town, they started to realize that they had a niche uh, that they could capitalize on and that that would really give them the kind of future that they were looking for collectively. So mm-hmm. they began to, to band together, envision what it was that they wanted to, to have come forward, and then they really started to do some pretty amazing things in terms of guerrilla art to make the issue more salient. There's some fascinating parts of the story in that regard. And then finally pulled together a public referendum. And that really was the, the linchpin of all of it, was to have this public referendum in which they voted not for a ban on pesticides, as it turned out, but for a pesticide-free future. And that was a really important distinction for them. Yeah, I loved that because it's so easy for us to go down the no and the ban path. And you emphasize this both in your book and your talk about the importance of having a vision of the future that you want to see and create, but also what are we saying yes to? And saying yes is so much more rewarding and positive as opposed to just saying no. Yeah, well, that was such a valuable lesson for me to learn. And I think part of the book, too, is the fact that 
when people come together, people who are, for lack of a, a better word, untrained activists, they can really come up with some of the best ideas organically and the best organic ideas. And in this case, it was the beekeeper in town, Pia Oswald, who was the person who, as they were making these banners that were going to appear magically one summer morning from balconies all around the area, she was the one who said, this has to be a positive campaign. It has to be about the future we want. And if it's negative, it's going to be polarizing and we'll never get people on the same platform when we're talking about what people can and can't do. But when we're talking about the future, we can pull people together. Right. And I think that more of us need to be talking about the precautionary principle, which I know you just mentioned, but how would you describe the precautionary principle in a nutshell? I think it's summed up by the burden of proof and who has the burden of proof in terms of safety or risk. Is it the manufacturers? Should they have the burden of proof for showing that whatever it is they're manufacturing, that that in fact is safe? Or should that fall upon the shoulders of the citizens to prove that something's dangerous? And the precautionary principle really emphasizes that it's upon the manufacturers to demonstrate that in fact whatever it is they're producing is safe. But the caveat there, too, is they're not the ones who should be doing the research. I think that's what we're up against in the United States. Right, exactly. The United States uses an economic lens as well as environmental and the public health piece. So I think it's important for us to remember that the public health harms and the environmental harms have to also weigh in from an economic perspective. I need to take one minute and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are speaking with Philip Ackerman Leist. He is the author of several books. The one we're talking about today is terrific. It's timely. And it's a page turner, as they say. The title is A Precautionary Tale, How One Small Town Banned Pesticides, Preserved Its Food Heritage, and Inspired a Movement. I want to add to the discussion on the precautionary principle something that you write actually in a different chapter. You speak about Gunther, one of the farmers, who says farmers should be able to manage their farms the way they want to, but only up to the point at which their decisions negatively impact others. And I think that is what we're witnessing today. Right. And that was a a really critical piece in the early stages of the discussion for the people there. I mean, they did want to have farmers feel that they weren't trying to infringe upon what they were doing. But at the same time, when pesticides move by air, by water, through the soil, then we've got to recognize that there are impacts there. And so it was a wise move at the very beginning for them to try to make sure that they weren't polarizing the discussion initially from the outset. Yeah. And I also think, you know, I've been in large auditoriums where people with high-level degrees from agriculture programs have spoken out against the precautionary principle as a way to voice concern about stopping progress. But you also explain that taking the precautionary approach doesn't mean stopping everything or not doing anything or blocking progress. It simply means looking for alternatives, using democracy, and as you mentioned earlier, reversing the burden of proof. Right. And as I mentioned earlier, I just I feel like we have those examples, those stories, the data, the research, the farmers. And so now we can pose the alternatives. I think with a power that, frankly, we couldn't do 20 years ago. I was challenged by my grandfather and also 
my boss in Italy is that you know I was begging for you know organic management of vineyards and orchards, and they challenged me to find the examples of farms that were doing it successfully, and and it was harder to do at that point. And now we have such an incredible opportunity because those examples and stories are there. Right. Well, part of how you describe this book to your audience at Irvine was that it's really a manifesto. And I totally agree. I love that word. And in the back of the book, you've got an activist primer, how to push back on pesticides at home. And I thought that some of the steps you laid out here are really important for all of us to consider. And I wonder if you want to pull out any key points in terms of how do we become smarter citizens and more active and effective in our own communities to protect what we love. Mm -hmm. The activist primer is really based on very wise words from Johannes the pharmacist, who was a key player in all of this. And it's perfect, really, if someone's going to tackle pesticides, you know, to get the town chemist to be that person right. know, is really pretty ideal. So, Johannes, we asked him for a prescription for successful collective action, and so he gave us the points that we utilized there. And I think what's so important uh, that Johannes points out is that this isn't one discussion. It's a rather lengthy educational campaign in which you're inviting people to listen to information, absorb it, talk about it and think their way through it. So the people of Maltz ended up having just about two dozen public informational sessions in which they brought in some of the best lawyers that they could find related to pesticide use. They brought in local farmers, uh, both and tried at different times to get conventional or organic farmers to sit together and have these conversations. They brought in the regulators in many cases, and uh, they also brought in the folks, the toxicologists, who had various different kinds of perspectives, and even some of the EU food safety folks. And there were a lot of divergent opinions, and so it was incumbent upon the audience, upon the citizenship there, to try to figure their way forward out of that. And I, I think they did a magnificent job in the end. Mm-hmm. And you also talk about how we seem to be so polarized when we have these discussions. So I love your comment about having the conventional and the organic farmer come together. And I think These individuals want to find common ground, and I think that the industry that sells these products would prefer for us to be polarized rather than united. And especially, I think, in the United States, there's a greater effort to use really sophisticated marketing techniques against us. For example, you talk about in the activist primer section about how do we apply the same steps that were used in malls in the United States. And you remind us that, you know, in the United States, thanks to the strategic, if not underhanded lobbying of the chemical industry, 43 states have some sort of law that preempts local communities from enacting ordinances that regulate pesticides. And then as a result for citizen outrage about, hey, we don't want to poison our children, our waterways, etc., you say that there's this political advocacy group dubbed RISE, Responsible Industry for a Sound Environment, that actually works against concerned citizens. So how do we navigate this kind of environment? Right. It's tough. We're in such a wash of information and some of it being (laughs) true and then some not. And and trying to deal with the science. And as with the activist primer, I think finding the key organizations like Beyond Pesticides, 
Environmental Working Group, Pan North America, and others who are really working hard to pull together the different research that's been done and really setting that forward and giving people the opportunity to look at that research themselves and make their own informed decisions. Because it is confusing as you start to, you're just doing the web surfing, you end up you know, on kind of all sides of the coin at one time and it's hard to discern your way forward. But I, I think these key organizations have really laid the groundwork for us to at least figure out where the scientific literature is that we should be reading and looking at the policy examples that have been successful so far. So I think we've got good allies out there like these organizations. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, relying on those, I think, is particularly important. And just having a discerning eye, but that's not always simple. No, it's not. And especially when we're getting information from people that we have grown to trust. So it could be mm-hmm. a university professor or it could be even a neighbor who we trust or a family member. We want to believe what these authorities are telling us, but I think after you go to a conference like Beyond Pesticides Forum and you see images of birth defects related to pregnant women who've been exposed to pesticides or you hear from the farm workers directly, those kinds of conversations need to be amplified further to help promote the kinds of things that happened in malts. Exactly. Yeah, I think that's so vital. And I feel like there's a rising awareness of these issues. I I don't know if that's your take or not, but I do, talking to various people, I'm I'm sure there are those who are bewildered or numb, but I, I think it's just so critical to dive into this issue with so many chemicals out there in our environment. And when you look at the fact that now over half of the children in the United States are chronically ill. It's not something that we can ignore anymore. Even if it's not for ourselves, it's for our children and grandchildren. Exactly. Well, I have pages of questions and comments that I wrote out in discussing this book, but I do want to put the ball in your court and just say, are there pieces of this story that you want to make sure our listeners know about? I think one of those pieces, and I think it fits the era in which we live, is this notion of local communities coming together in ways that they're galvanizing for a vision that they really all buy into. And I think right now when we feel so overwhelmed with so much of what's happening at the national and international level, it really is a time to reclaim the grassroots movements, be it for pesticides or otherwise. And and I hope folks look at direct democracy as well and this ability to put issues forward and first of all, to galvanize public support and then to get people to rally together. And I also I think it's, it's it's really amazing in the malt story to look at the people who came together, such a diverse cast of characters. And had a pharmacist who played a key role, a pediatrician, a veterinarian, a hairdresser who ended up becoming one of the first organic hairdressers in all of Italy as a result of this, different restaurant owners, hotel owners. You know, it's just incredible to see that cast of characters. And I think sometimes when we think about political movements, We think about the people with whom we're immediately in touch or that we're attuned with. And in this case, you know, people had to let down a lot of those barriers. And so that certainly is a lesson for us in the United States right now as to, as we have these grassroots or sometimes progressive movements, we need to be open to trying to bring as many people to the table as we can. I agree. And I think there is so much power in unity and coming together and working in solidarity. I would recommend that people not only read a precautionary tale, 
but that they also go back and read the book that you wrote in 2013, Rebuilding the Food Shed. I particularly like the way in which you talk about food and rebuilding our food sheds in terms of rebuilding democracies. And when I travel around the country, I see a lot of communities that are really struggling. And I think about the kind of food that those people have available to them. And then I think about communities, many of which are in Vermont and in places where there is thriving, sustainable agriculture. And there's art and there's music and there's creativity and there's excellent food. And I just think that if we had a choice, which community would we want to live in and raise our children? So that's the future that I see. And I think rebuilding the food shed helps paint the picture of how we can get there. Well, thank you. And I've been fascinated with this notion of what I've called food shed as new democracy, because obviously food and water, um, healthy air, I mean, all of those things are are part and parcel of what we have. And food is so celebratory when we have the opportunity to to really dig in, and it, it reveals our individual identities. And with the fusion, it also really it shows us the way forward that we can also combine these various cultural ideas and influences. And so it, it's a celebratory act when things are going the way they should. And so I think that's something that we need to remember and really try to focus on as we move forward. Do you want to give our listeners a charge? Well, it's probably really to look around at your community and environment, you know, understand what's happening, first of all, to the children. And I think whatever is there that's present and that poses both opportunities and challenges for our children, I think then that should be the point of action is what they need to do. And in fact, Ulrich, the mayor of Maltz, he said that the most meaningful comment that came to him at one point early in this whole initiative was that there was an older woman who came up to him just after he'd been elected and said, Uli, as they call him in town, that's his nickname, she said, Uli, if you protect the children, then you've protected all of us. That's all we need you to do. Wow. If only we made all our decisions based on that one observation. I want to direct people to websites where they can learn more about you. Certainly, Green Mountain College is a national example it is exemplary with regard to turning out students who are thinking in this way. But you've also partnered, as you mentioned earlier, with Douglas Gayton and Toppling Goliath, and you've got a website, www.topplinggoliath.org, and we'll make that available to our listeners. Is there anything you want to add briefly about the power of storytelling that you've learned in working with Douglas? Douglas has been a wonderful mentor in, in that regard, and there's so many pieces that he's taught me. And I think as advocates and activists, we really need to follow his model of trying to not only dig out the stories, but also help communities tell their own stories. It's not always about us going in as journalists or authors. It's really going in to help communities tell their own story. That's a really powerful piece. And then to be platform agnostic, as Douglas calls it, so that you know, we reach all audiences and generations that we can. So with pop-up shows, with websites, with books, with videos, all of those pieces going to penetrate into different sectors of our society. And I think that's really important because we need everybody on board. It's not just a certain elite or you know, certain folks who are comfortable with one kind of technology or another. 
Well, I want to thank you so much for this book and for all of your work. I need to close, but I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And most of all, I want to thank my guest, Philip Ackerman Leist, author of Rebuilding the Food Shed, as well as the book we've been talking about today, A Precautionary Tale, How One Small Town Banned Pesticides, Preserved Its Food Heritage, and Inspired a Movement. He is a professor of sustainable agriculture at the beautiful Green Mountain College in Pulteney, Vermont, and he also is proud to be the founder of our nation's first online graduate program in food systems. So thank you so much for all of your time and your work. Thank you, Melinda, for sharing so many different stories that I always listen to and relish. 